1: To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor.
2: See, by proclaiming his title, the Lord God of the Hebrews, to a non-Hebrew people, the Egyptians, it really emphasized what Paul called the great advantage that the Jewish people have in Romans 3, 1 through 2. When Paul said, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? And then he answers it in verse two. Much every way, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. This is what Paul called the great advantage of the Jew. And when Paul considered the question exactly what are the advantages that the Jew has, what are the advantages of the Jew, Paul said that there are many advantages of the Jew which he expressed with these words much every way. But then Paul considered what was the number one, what was the ichiban, what was the Chief advantage among all the advantages of the Jew. And without a doubt, Paul stated, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. This verse tells us that, that we were considering here in Romans that the Bible is called the oracles of God. The oracles of God are the speakings of God, or what we call the words of God, or just short, the word of God. And God made one people responsible for for the word, for his, his word, and he, he committed to one people the writing down of those words of God for the rest of the world. And God made one people responsible for, and he committed to one people the preservation, the preserving of those words of God for the rest of the world. So when you go to Israel and you go to the monument of the scroll and you go to that building and you see the Dead Sea Scrolls right there in the heart of the land of Israel, it's a message chiefly that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And that one people that God chose to record and to preserve his words for the rest of the world is the Jewish people, is the Jew. And therefore, Paul says, what advantage then hath the Jew and what profit is there of circumcision much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. But there were other advantages, other advantages of the Jewish people. and Paul describes them in Romans 9, 4 through 5, who he says, he calls them Israelites. He says in Romans 4, Through five, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. So here we have a list of really eight advantages. The the verses in Romans 9 are 7, and the ones in Romans 3 are 1. And when we list them all out, the advantages that the Jew had from God, we see number one, responsible for bringing the word of God to the world. They received the word of God from God, and they were responsible to bring it to the world. Number two, they were adopted as a people of God. Number three, they had the glory of God that resided in their tabernacle and in their temple. Number four, they have the covenants of God that God made with them. Number five, they had the law that God gave to them. Number six, the service of God in their tabernacle and in their temple. Number seven, the promises made that God made with them. And number eight, that through them or to them first, the Messiah came for the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great impact of Isaiah 9, 6, where it says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. God came first in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to the Jewish people. Great advantages, but all those advantages, they centered in one person, their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that all those advantages brought the greatest benefit to those individual Jews who received the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the same token, all of those advantages that brought the greatest loss to those individual Jews who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ because it all centered and centers around him. That's why the fact that the majority of the Jewish people have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the greatest scandal in the universe. But the rejection of the majority does not change the fact that the Jewish people were greatly advantaged or privileged compared to other people. And that's what's being expressed by God. And when Moses told Moses to say his title, the Lord God of the Hebrews. And Moses told the Jewish people to consider the privileges and the advantages that God gave to them. He told the Jewish people to consider their advantages or their privileges in his famous me goy challenge. Me goy, me means what and goy means nation. So he says his challenge was what nation, me goy, in Deuteronomy four, seven through eight, when he says for what nation or me goy is there so great who have God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for. And what nation, or migoi, is there so great that have statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? King David also, he had his own migoi challenge for the Jewish people to consider. In 2 Samuel seven twenty three through 24, David said this, and what one nation, or migoi, in the earth is like the people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. And for thou hast confirmed To thyself, thy people Israel, to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, Lord, art become their God. Art become their God. And he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, the Lord God of the Hebrews, God became their God. And when God proclaimed himself to be the Lord God of the Hebrews, he was revealing that he had become. Their God. He had become their God to take care of the Hebrews. By calling himself the Lord God of the Hebrews, God was committing himself to provide for the needs of the Hebrews. And when we look at what was said in verse 18, we can see it simply like this First statement, what is about to be said as an introduction is coming from the Lord God of the Hebrews. In other words, the Lord God of the Hebrews is going to take care of the greatest need of the Hebrews. And the greatest need of the Hebrews is stated in the second statement in verse 18, which is, now let us go. That was the greatest need of the Hebrews, to be set free from Egypt's slavery, to be let go. So when we put the two statements together, it looks like this. The Lord God of the Hebrews is meeting the greatest need of the Hebrews, which is to provide freedom for the Hebrews. The Lord God of the Hebrews is providing for the greatest need of the Hebrews, their freedom. By standing up against Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, the king of the Egyptians, the Lord says, the Lord God of the Hebrews, which is the same as God saying to the king of Egypt that he is the king of the Hebrews, or he is or God is the king of the Jews. So if someone wants to say, where is the Lord God of the Hebrews? The answer is, providing for the greatest need of the Hebrews, which is their emancipation from Egypt. Now, that scene of the Lord God of the Hebrews, or the king of the Jews, providing for the greatest need of the Hebrews, sets the stage for the next scene which we see in two parts, like two acts. The first act, or the first part, is seen in wise men who come to Jerusalem and they've got one question on their mind and that question is, from, is seen in Matthew 2.2. These wise men saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And when those wise men asked where is he that is, born king of the Jews, in other words, where is the king of the Jews, that was the same as asking where is the Lord God of the Hebrews? And the answer to the question of the wise men, where is the king of the Jews, is seen in the second act, which is seen in John 19, John 19, 18 through 22, where we read, and they crucified him, and two other with him on either side. One and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So the wise men in act one asked the great question, where is the king of the Jews? But it was Pilate in act two who answered that great question with a sign that was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin and it read, this is the king of the Jews. The wise men asked the question in Matthew 2.2, where is the king of the Jews? Pilate, by putting that sign right over his head on the cross, answered the question in John 19.19, this is the king of the Jews. Where is the king of the Jews? He's on a cross. Why is the king of the Jews on the cross? Because he's providing for the greatest need of the Jews. What is the greatest need of the Jews? To be saved from the judgment that their sins made them deserve for an eternity in hell. How can they be saved from this judgment? By having a sinless sacrifice to die in their place for their sins. Who is the sinless sacrifice that can save them from their sins by dying for them? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So the question of the wise men in Matthew 2.2, where is the king of the Jews? The answer of Pilate, John 19.19. Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the title was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Where is the Lord God of the Hebrews? In Egypt, meeting the greatest need of the Jews to emancipate them from Egypt. Where is the king of the Jews? On a cross, meeting the greatest need of the Jews, dying for their sins and the jews said to god no in essence the jews said to god no our greatest need is to be free from rome we want a lion of a king to defeat rome for us and god said to the jews no your greatest need is atonement for your sins i'm not sending you now a lion for your king i'm sending you a lamb for your king, to die for your sins. And the Jews said to God, where is our king? And the Jews looked to God to be their king. And the Jews said, anyone but Jesus, not Jesus to be our king. And God says to the Jews, you are looking for me? Look on the cross, I'm up here on the cross under the sign that says the king of the Jews. And we can imagine that from the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ was saying the words of Isaiah forty five twenty two when the Jews would say, "Where is the king? Where is our king?" And from Isaiah forty five twenty two, we can imagine the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross saying, "Look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else." And the Jews said, "Who's that on the cross?" And the Lord Jesus Christ says. I am God and your king who has become a man to die for your sins. I am God, there is none else. Look unto me and be ye saved. And when the Jewish people had been bitten by those poisonous snakes in the wilderness during Moses' time, and then what happened for their remedy? God told Moses to make a brass snake and that everyone, God promised, that everyone who looked up to that snake and believed that they would be healed, because God said they would be healed if they looked to the snake, they were healed. And just as Moses lifted up that brass snake in the wilderness, and the people followed God's instructions, and the people believed that by looking they would be saved from the fatal venom, so any Jew who looked at the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and believed that he was God, who had become a man to die for their sins and put his trust in him as their king, he was saved from the fatal venom of their own personal sin. Just as God had become the Lord God of the Hebrews, had become their God to save the Jews from Egypt, so God became Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, to save the Jews from their sins by dying for them on the cross. Now, we come now in verse 18, and so after Pharaoh, the king of the Egypt, the king of the Egyptians, is to hear that God has proclaimed himself to be uh, the Lord God of the Hebrews or the God or the king of the Jews, then Moses was to tell Pharaoh that the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. What a tremendous statement. God has met with us. That was what he was to say. God has met with us. Their, their message was, God met with us, and he says to you, Let us go. All their authority, Moses and the elders, came by the fact that they said, God met with us. What is tremendous is that God has made it possible for us to meet with him. And just as the Jewish people had one place, where they met with God, and that place was the place that God chose later on as their history goes on, and it says in, in Exodus 25, 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. In the same chapter in verse 22 of Exodus 25, it says, and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee, from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony. See, God had one meeting place where he met with the Jewish people and that was in the tabernacle. So today, God has chosen one place where he will meet with us, where he meets with man and that place is described in John 1.14 where it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the Lord Jesus Christ was made flesh, and he dwelt among us, or literally, he tented or he tabernacled among us. So just as God met with the Jewish people in the tabernacle, our tabernacle is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Moses met with God, we meet God in the Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And when we come to the Bible, we don't just come to a book to learn it. We come to the Bible to meet with God. And our Bible time, the time we spend with the Bible is a success if we come away from our Bible time and if we can honestly say the words of verse 18, God has met with me. And when we come to our morning devotion time, we don't just come to put in a required amount of time that we got, okay, we gotta check this off, we gotta read, we gotta pray. Well, when we come to our devotion time, we come to meet with God. And our devotion time is a success if we can honestly say at the end of our devotion time the words of verse 18, God has met with me. And the power behind the demand of Moses and the elders of now let us go came when they said, the Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. And when we've taken time to meet with God in our morning devotions, and we know we've met with God, and he's infused us with his word, with the word of God during that time. Then we carry the gospel to souls that need the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we speak to the lost, we speak with the same authority that Moses had. But when we have not met with God in the morning and we've not taken time to let God put his fresh word in us each day, then we lose the authority. And when we bring the gospel to the lost, it's so mechanical. It's so dead and we know it and others know it also because it was when Moses met with God that God sent Moses to Pharaoh and it was when we meet with God that he sends us day by day, every day to a lost world to bring the gospel to them as it says in Romans 10, 13 through 15. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall, they, how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them which preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, Moses was to make his request to Pharaoh. Verse 18, now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So here we see God telling Moses to to communicate four points to Moses. First, let us go. Ask, Pharaoh, Second, for permission. We beseech thee, be humble with the request. Third, three days' journey. Ask to be gone for only three days. Fourth, that we may sacrifice to the Lord. Tell him the purpose for why you want to go, to worship God. Now, the obvious question is, when we read this, is why in the world did God have Moses ask Pharaoh for only three days in a very submissive, gentle, humble way and explain to him the reason why he wanted only three days? I mean, this is so unusual to see God instructing Moses to be so meek, to be so gentle, to be so mild, in his, re- his approach and his request to, to Pharaoh. Why in the world would God want Moses to act that way? Why should he act? He's about to destroy Egypt. Why should he act so meek and so gentle and so humble with Pharaoh? Why could God ever have in mind when he told Moses to approach Pharaoh in this way? Why is God instructing Moses to be so meek with Pharaoh? If I was to ask you today, Is there one outstanding title in the Bible for Moses? What would you say? Just say, what what is the outstanding title that Moses has in the Bible? And there is one. There is. I mean, what is the one outstanding title for Moses? There is an outstanding title for Moses in the Bible and is the title, the servant of the Lord.
1: Santee, California, nine two zero seven one. Or email Tom Cantor at Tom Cantor at Friendship org. Tom Cantor at Friendship org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at eight hundred two four seven three zero five one.
0: What are you doing Sunday nights?